Our video classes on the book of Acts continue. I have planned for this session a study of Acts chapter 17. I hope you have your Bible ready. Acts chapter 17. We will go through the text, and the text will lead us to important instructions for thought and application in our lives. Every day, as we seek to be the people of God in the way we live. Four fast facts as we begin. The chapter opens in Thessalonica and then to Berea. Attention then shifts to Athens, a place considered to be of high intellectual culture. Paul's sermon was and is valuable in the instruction imparted about God, that we are the offspring of God, that is central truth captured by Paul in this sermon and conveyed and recorded in Luke's account of Paul's preaching in Athens. We are now in Acts chapter 17, and I'm going to begin by reading verse 1 down through verse 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as his custom was, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. That's the reading of Acts 17, 1 through 9. First, we see a place that we may be familiar with, Thessalonica, because there are two New Testament books, Paul writing to those Christians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Here in Acts 17, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and for three weeks it says he reasoned with the Jews. Now, mark this phrase. He reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures. Paul wasn't engaged in a typical debate of academic logic or the joy of argument for its own sake. He was talking to these Jews about what their book said. Verse 3, 
explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Then Paul said to them, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. As it happened everywhere, the gospel was preached. Some were persuaded, some were not. In this case, Jews who were jealous of the attention given to the gospel preachers made a very ugly scene, stirred up a mob reaction. When they couldn't find Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they dragged a man named Jason and other Christians out and made false charges against them and made them pay before letting them go. Apparently, these opponents of the gospel did not objectively study the scriptures Paul gave. So being ignorant and unbelieving, they caused an uproar. Continuing in Acts 17, I'm at verses 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, <clears throat> examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Paul and Timothy remained there. That's Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 14. And to that, I would like to add verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. That's Acts 17, 10 through 15. So again at Berea, into the synagogue, Finding Jews who are familiar with Scripture, Paul and his co-workers delivered the same message. The Messiah is here. Jesus is the Christ. You need to obey the gospel. In contrast to the Jews in Thessalonica who were unbelieving and jealous, these people looked carefully at the Scriptures they had to verify what Paul was saying. Such uh, discernment is commendable. Mark this as commendable. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Such discernment remains necessary today. You've heard of fake news lately. Well, the gospel is called the good news, the truth. It is necessary when listening to preaching and teaching to make certain it is the good news, not the fake news of human religious empires that thrive today. Always use your Bible to fact check what preachers and teachers say. 
Back to those unbelieving, jealous Jews in Thessalonica. They hear about the success of the gospel in Berea, and they won't have that. So they show up to create more trouble. Paul moves on toward Athens. Silas and Timothy remain in Macedonia for a while. We arrive now at Acts 17 from verse 16 down through verse 21, please. Acts 17, 16 through 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The Athenians were a people of curiosity. They liked to talk and exchange viewpoints and debate. They loved a good debate. But what really stimulated or provoked Paul was the presence of so many idols. One of the first commentaries that I had in my library on the book of Acts and now have in online format is written by J.W. McGarvey. And there's one of those passages in McGarvey's commentary that I shall never forget. And I'm going to give you that quotation. This is from J.W. McGarvey. He's commenting about this episode Luke narrates in Acts chapter 17. McGarvey says, Walking along the streets of a city whose fame had been familiar to him from childhood and seeing in the temples and statues on every hand, and the constant processions of people going to and from the places of worship, evidence that the city was given to idolatry, though a lonely stranger who might have been awed into silence by the magnificence around him, Paul felt his soul aroused to make one mighty struggle for the triumph even here, of the humble gospel which he preached. His first effort, as usual, was in the Jewish synagogue. But there seemed to have been none among the Jews or devout Gentiles there to receive the truth. The pride of human philosophy and the debasement of refined idolatry had overpowered the influence of the law and the prophets so that he fails of his usual success. He does not, however, despair. Having access to no other formal assembly, he goes upon the streets and places of public concourse and discourse to those who happen to be there. So, McGarvey 
paints this picture based on what Luke wrote that the Holy Spirit gave of Paul disgusted, bothered by a people loaded down with idolatry, but he didn't walk away in disgust. No, this was an opportunity. These people needed to hear about God and Christ, and they needed to repent. And so let's see what happened in Acts 17. We're going to continue at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Once again, I should like to quote McGarvey about this unknown God. McGarvey said, after erecting altars to all the known gods, it was easier to find a God in Athens than a man. They had extended their worship even to such as might be in existence without their knowledge. You know, like wanting to make sure you have all your bases covered. There may be deities in existence you don't know about or haven't discovered yet. Nobody's told you about them yet. Thus, the altar honoring the unknown God generically. Sometimes 
I think and talk about in regard to reaching people with the gospel points of contact. That means something you observe or learn about people that becomes your pathway, your introduction to get their attention and let them hear the gospel. So here in Athens, Paul says, in essence, there is a God you don't know about. He is the creator. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, we're going to pause here. Here is one of the good examples of a great sermon. Paul speaking to the Athenians. Let's observe what Paul affirmed in this sermon. A sermon needs an objective, an affirmation. Paul affirms there is a personal, self-sufficient God who is other than the world. He is the God who created, who made all things. This is a marvelous statement about God, and these people in this city filled with idols needed to hear about this God. Notice Paul's affirmation in the very beginning of his sermon, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples, built by hands, <clears throat> and he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That's the theme, that's the topic, the proposition of Paul's sermon. Now, would you consider how much truth is packed into these two verses? God is the creator. He made the world and everything in it. God is sovereign. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. God is omnipresent, not limited to temples made by the hands of men. God is self-sufficient. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And God is the sustainer of life. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything. So the subject of the sermon, you can see, is God. God made everything. He is Lord of heaven and earth, not limited to what men make in terms of structure. He is self-sufficient, not in need. He's the sustainer. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Paul was not intimidated he did not hesitate to preach exactly what they needed to hear. This was a city filled with idols, and these were the leading intellectuals of this culture. To them, he said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is not served by human hands. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Paul goes on to say, God has created all nations and races of humankind from a common source. How important is that truth today? From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and be determined, uh, and, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Among the Athenian philosophers, it was common for men to believe in the superiority 
of one race above another. There was arrogance and pride and racism. And part of this viewpoint was the belief that one race was superior to others. Likewise, there was no conviction, no underlying trust in the providence of God, the Creator. So Paul repudiated these common views when he said these things about God from one man. He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God has created us, furthermore, for his fellowship, that we should seek the Lord, verses 27 through 28. I heard a preacher say one time, referring to this passage, Paul's theme is, there is a God, and you need to seek him. There is a God, and you should get to know him. There is a God, and you should obey him, because there is a God, and you will stand before him in judgment. I think that's right. If you would listen to verses 27 through 29, you'll hear all of that. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. So this is simple, but so profound. God made us, and we should seek him. We should be compelled and happy to reach out for him and find him, that we might put ourselves under his good direction and care. And notice the statement, he is not far from each one of us. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ was a public event known to men in the world then, known by everybody today. The gospel was taken outside of Jerusalem to Antioch, Galatia, Macedonia, Athens, eventually to America and to Arkansas and to Texas. The gospel can be preached, can be understood. All you need to respond is a good and honest heart and sufficient water for baptism with your commitment to serve and love God the rest of your life. The evidence of God's existence and providence is everywhere around us, and not only are we his offspring, but in him we live and move and have our existence. See, he is not far from each of us. This is about God and our response to him. All human beings are accountable to the God who has created them. Verse 30 is such a clear important statement. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Take a moment and underscore that part that says all men. Stoics, Epicureans, philosophers, common people, males and females, Jews and Gentiles, Americans, Mexicans, Russians, Filipinos, all men, white, black, all human beings are accountable to the God who created them. Paul wanted that to be clear when he stood there in Athens. There was a time of ignorance before Jesus came, Paul says. 
There was a time when the gospel plan was not yet fully revealed. But now all men everywhere are commanded to repent. That means to change their thinking and their action, to turn their lives away from sin to God. The gospel is a message of repentance, promising forgiveness to those who respond. The gospel is intended for all men, so God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now Paul was preaching this in Athens before he spoke to this audience. Refer back to verse 18 where it says he was preaching to them Jesus and the resurrection. Here at the end of his speech to these men, he affirms the resurrection of Christ and on the basis of that truth, he implies we will be raised and stand before divine judgment. God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead, raising Jesus. We know that we will be raised and will stand before this great judgment seat. And we know that because he has given assurance of this to all, by raising him from the dead. People need to hear this. Everybody needs to hear this. So they will have the opportunity to repent and be baptized. Epicureans and Stoics, religious people, secular people, intellectuals, common people, people in Jerusalem, Athens, Macallan, India, China. If everybody will stand before God to be judged, and we have assurance of this by the historical truth of the resurrection of Christ, then everybody needs to know this and everybody needs to repent and be ready. Paul was not intimidated by Athens. He could not be silent. Everybody needs the gospel. So he challenged their unbelief, spoke to them about the God they did not know and told them they were accountable to God and would stand before him in judgment. Now, Looking back over these points we've made, the theme emerges with great boldness. Paul wanted them to hear about the God they did not know and the God they were not serving. I want you to listen again from 22 over to 31 in Acts 17. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods 
and the boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's sermon in Athens. It was time for these people to reject idolatry, to recognize the one true and living God, and then be responsive. Some would sneer, others would simply be curious, some would believe and obey, and become servants of God. Takeaways. We are the offspring of God. Paul quotes one of their own poets, who acknowledged this fact of creation. We are also his offspring. What is evident to secular poets apparently escapes the notice of idolaters. We were made by God, the designer. We were made like God in His image. We were made for God. Romans chapter 1 argues there is evidence of deity clearly visible everywhere, all around us. We were made in the image of God. Thus, for people made by God in His image, His offspring, to bow before imaginary or non-existent forms of deity is inconsistent with the truth of creation. Number two, let's bring up just briefly the point made in verse 30 about the times of ignorance that God overlooked. Saying that God overlooked the times of ignorance does not mean He was pleased by any sin. It does not mean and does not provide any comfort for anyone in sin today. The operative phrase is, but... Now, whatever God decided to wait to do in time past, whatever spin anybody puts on the word overlooked, we resolve that by objectively considering this operative phrase, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent. Number three, I want to mention the day of judgment. That's a legitimate motive to take people to repentance. McGarvey was right when he wrote about this. He said, The soul-stirring fact that God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness is indeed a powerful motive to repentance because a judgment in righteousness must inevitably involve the condemnation of all the unrighteous. I believe he was right, and this call to repentance based on the judgment day 
is not limited to this example of preaching. Paul spoke to Felix later about righteousness and self-control and judgment to come, Acts 24, 25. <clears throat> and in the charge that Paul gave to Timothy, and by application all preachers, in 2 Timothy 4, 1, he said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Biblical preaching calls upon people to repent because a day has been appointed on which God will judge the world. And let me say, God is within the reach of all men. The greatest good is not pleasure, as the Epicureans taught. The greatest good is not apathy or endurance, as the Stoics said. The greatest good is to be found in seeking God, to know Him, to learn of His provisions for our salvation in Christ, to know what we must do to respond to deity, to know what purpose we were made to fulfill, to know God and know His Son, because we have the truth of the gospel, it can be said, He is not far from each one of us. The truth taught by Paul on Mars Hill should be taught today by us faithfully and fully. Thank you for being with us for this video class. Next, we will enter into a study of 